Please grab your Bibles and turn with me, if you will, to the book of Titus. Chapter 2, as we look this morning at verses 11 to 15. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. And I am pleased to announce this morning that we have reached the summit. We this morning are standing on a mountain peak looking out over the book of Titus. In fact, one, one could say that our passage this morning is the linchpin. It is the, it is the turning point. It is the culmination of this entire letter. And verses 11 to 15, they are, they are theologically dense and they are simply dripping with grace. And so my prayer for each of us this morning, my prayer is that we would feel the effect that Paul intends for these words to have on us this morning. And so when you find your place there, I would invite you one more time to stand with me as we honor together the reading of God's holy and errant word. Beginning in verse 11, the Apostle Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. You can be seated this morning. Well, this may come as a real surprise to you, but I do not work out. I know you may find that hard to believe, but it's true. But believe it or not, there was a time in my life, however, when I had my very own private, personal trainer. For two sessions, that is. Lauren and I had a trial membership at a local gym, and this membership included two free private sessions with a personal trainer. Now, I can't remember if I was guilted into going or if I really wanted to go, but against my better judgment, I went, and needless to say, it was one of the most miserable experiences of my entire life, for it was at this gym where I met Gary, my personal trainer. I can still remember his name, Gary. Gary. It just sounds like a personal trainer, doesn't it? And Gary, well, Gary was your stereotypical trainer. Gary wore shirts three sizes too small. Uh, Gary looked like he had just stepped out of GQ magazine. And you might think that being my first session with Gary and being a guy who by all appearances has never stepped foot into a gym, that Gary would maybe go easy on me. Um, But you would be wrong. No, in fact, I I think Gary secretly wanted to kill me. And 
you might suppose that a personal trainer would be someone who would be encouraging and motivating, right? Well, no. Instead, Gary, Gary made me feel guilty because I didn't live at the gym like Gary did. Gary, Gary was condescending to me because I didn't know what core strengthening meant or anything like that. And, and in, in my own personal opinion, Gary, Gary was a very bad trainer. And so with my next session with Gary, well, I didn't go. <laughs> I quit. <laughs> I, was, I was done with Gary. Trainers are meant to inspire. They're meant to encourage. They're meant to motivate. And, and training, training it should provide one with a positive discipline and instruction and teaching and coaching and training so that a person grows, so that a person is strengthened. When Titus chapter 2, the Apostle Paul instructs his original readers and us this morning as well that the Christian too has a trainer. However, this trainer, this trainer is meant to motivate. This trainer is meant to inspire and to stimulate and to energize the believer. This trainer is meant to strengthen and empower the Christian to live a godly life. And this trainer goes by the name of grace. Grace is the name of this trainer. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. What enables the Christian to live a godly life? Paul says it's grace. Grace teaches. Grace instructs. Grace empowers. Grace trains us to live a godly life. Grace disciplines us to deny sin and to flee temptation. Grace strengthens us and energizes us to pursue godliness and to cultivate a life of good works. The grace of God trains the believer to live a godly life. And this morning, this morning, in verses 11 to 14, as we reach now the summit of Paul's letter to Titus, we discover this morning how it is that grace trains us for godliness. Notice here that chapter 2 is bookended with Paul's instructions to Titus and to these elders that he is to appoint how they are to teach in these churches there on the island of Crete and what they are to teach. Look there at verse 1. Titus is, notice, to teach what accords with sound doctrine. He's to teach sound doctrine, but he's not only to teach sound doctrine. Notice also he is to teach the kind of godly life that fits with that doctrine. A life that is consistent with the doctrine that we have seen described, haven't we, in verses 2 to 10. And then, the other bookend, notice in verse 15, Titus again is told to declare these things, and these things would include everything that he has been describing in, verse, or in chapter 2, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. So Paul, notice he commands Titus to declare these things. Why? Well, because gospel doctrine and godly living, they must go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other. 
And thus far, in chapter 2, we have seen the godly life that Paul has been describing, haven't we? We've seen it as it's been described there in verses 2 to 10. We've seen it as it addresses older men and older women and younger women and younger men. But now, in verses 11 to 14, we arrive now at the glorious gospel doctrine that Titus is also commanded to teach. And what is that doctrine? It is the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the doctrine. And that's what we discover here this morning. This glorious doctrine. And it's this doctrine that enables us, believers, to live a godly life. Verse 11, notice Paul, he roots now his previous ethical exhortations that we saw in verses 2 to 10, he roots them in the grace of God. In fact, look there, verse 11. Notice he turns now from duty to doctrine. So he's going to pivot. He pivots from duty now to doctrine, which, by the way, is actually, it's actually a little bit out of the ordinary for the apostle, because normally for Paul, in his letters, he introduces doctrine prior to issuing then the appropriate moral demands that fit with that doctrine. So for example, in the book of Romans, or in Ephesians, or in Colossians, it's usually doctrine before duty. As John Stott says, he says, Paul's usual method is to begin with doctrine and then with a mighty therefore go on to its ethical implications. It's duty before doctrine, doctrine before duty. But notice here, however, in Titus 2, the order is reversed. It's duty, verses 2 to 10, before doctrine, verses 11 to 14. It's, it's the ethical imperatives first, what we are to do, how we are to live, followed then by immediately notice the indicatives. This is what God has done for us in Christ. And yet, here in chapter 2, the two Duty and doctrine, they're still closely linked together. And they're linked, notice in verse 11, with that very important word, for. For, or for this reason, or because. This connects verses 11 to 14 with verses 2 to 10. And thus, all of the commands, all, all of the imperatives, all of the exhortations, they are all rooted in grace. They are all grounded. They all rest on the grace of God. And so Paul begins now to articulate how the grace of God informs and instructs and empowers these ethical commands. How, how grace inspires us to live a life of good works and godly living in fact, that's the question we want to address this morning. How does grace train us to live godly lives? How does grace train us to live godly lives? And Paul's answer is that grace trains us to live godly lives by having us look in two directions. By looking back to grace and by looking forward to grace. Looking backward to grace, looking forward to grace. Notice there, verse 11 and in verse 13, notice there are 
two appearings, two manifestations. The, the word means unveiling. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So here notice, we are looking backward to what Christ accomplished at his first coming. And then in verse 13, Paul says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So now we're told also to look forward here to his second coming. So Paul is saying that the Christian is daily between these two appearings now to be looking both backward and forward. We are to look backward to grace and we are to look forward to grace. And by doing so, in verse 12, these two looks They are actually training us to live godly lives. That's the flow of Paul's argument in verses 11 to 14. So let's take a closer look at that now. First, I want you to notice with me looking backward to grace. Looking backward to grace. Verse 11. (laughs) One one simply cannot read verse 11 in a monotone voice. (laughs) For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. In fact, verses 11 to 14, they actually form one sentence in the original Greek. And William Mounts, I I think William Mounts captures this most effectively when he writes, verses 11 to 14, he says, constitute one sentence with grace standing as its subject. Oh my, that is true. Grace, grace is the subject here. This one sentence stands with grace as its subject. He goes on to say, grace is the one word summary of God's saving act in Christ given freely to sinners who believe. The gospel in one word, is a message of grace. Verse 11, the grace of God has appeared. And so just notice a few things we are reminded of about grace here, Paul reminds us. Notice first here that grace, grace is a person. Verse 11, the grace of God has appeared. Who appeared? Well, Christ appeared. He appeared. In other words, Jesus Christ is grace personified. Grace is not simply some sort of abstract idea. No, grace is a person. Grace is personified in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that God wasn't gracious prior to Christ's appearing. No, God, he has always been gracious. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Exodus 34. No, what it means is simply that when Jesus Christ stepped into human history, the grace of God uniquely and visibly appeared. The grace of God, planned in eternity past, showed up. And grace has now uniquely arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, the grace of God has appeared. Grace is a person. 
In fact, did you notice, notice how Paul describes the person of Jesus Christ in these verses? Did, did you notice the, the rich, deep doctrine of Christ in these verses? I mean, this, this passage is just crammed full of deep theology. I mean, notice there, notice in verse 11, Christ appeared. He didn't come into being at his birth. No, he just appeared. The eternal Son of God took on human flesh. This is incarnation language. The grace of God appeared in the unveiling of the person of Jesus Christ. Or in verse 13, look there. Notice again how Paul describes him. This Jesus is none other than God the Son. Verse 13, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, as John Stott writes, he says, this is perhaps the most unambiguous declaration in the New Testament of the deity of Jesus. Jesus Christ is none other than God himself. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is very God of very God. The grace of God appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. But notice Paul says why this grace appeared. Why did grace appear? Verse 11, Christ appeared in order to, verse 11, bring salvation. The grace of God appeared bringing salvation. This grace, beloved, it brings salvation. Christ didn't come to teach a good moral ethic for us to live by. This was a rescue mission. He came to save. He broke into the sin and darkness of our world in order to bring grace and to save sinners like you and me. And so this means that at his first appearing, at his first coming, he didn't come, he didn't come to judge the world. He didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. He came to bring grace. He came to save. Verse 11, grace is God's action toward undeserving sinners to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. God has offered to us in Christ as those who are richly deserving because of our guilt and our sin, richly deserving of the wrath and the condemnation of God, he has offered to us in Christ his unmerited, undeserved favor, the forgiveness of our sins, and this comes to us only through the grace that is found in Christ, through his sinless life, through his substitutionary death, his atoning work on the cross, his triumphant resurrection. And this grace, it is free. This grace is unmerited. This grace is undeserved and unearned. Grace is available. Salvation is available only through Jesus Christ. And this grace is for all people. Verse 11, bringing salvation for all people. This, this grace is available to all all. Now, lest we think that Paul is teaching here some sort of universalism in which all people will be saved, no. Paul simply means that this grace is available to all who hear and respond to this grace. 
If grace is available only in Christ, then it stands to reason that it is only available to those who hear of the grace of God that is available through the work of Jesus Christ. But this grace is available to all. It's available to young and old. It's available to male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, religious, irreligious, church folk, pagan folk. It's for all. Everyone on the island of Crete, everyone present here today, listen, if you will simply turn away from your sin and rebellion against God and you will put your hope and your trust in Christ for salvation, you too can experience the grace of God, the rescue of sin, the hope of eternal life. The Christian, Paul says, must never cease to look back to grace, to a hill called Calvary. Why? Well, point number two, the effect of grace. The effect of grace. Notice in verse 12, this grace is intended to have an effect. This grace, it not only saves us, but it also trains us. Listen, God's grace isn't merely meant to save you. It is meant, Paul says, to sanctify you. Grace trains those it saves. Look at verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. You see, so often, I think that we, we tend to view salvation merely in past tense terms, don't we? We tend to do that, right? When were you saved? Or I was saved at nine years of age, don't we? That's, that's oftentimes what we tend to do, and that's true. That's true, beloved. But in reality, for the Apostle Paul, salvation is ongoing. Yes, it, it, is, it is instantaneous at the moment that a person responds in saving faith to the gospel. At the moment that you respond in saving faith to the message of the gospel, you are at that moment, justified before God, you are declared right with God. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed. It is credited to you through faith. Yes, all of that is true, and all of that is based on the grace of God. However, however, this saving grace, notice, also has ongoing effects for the Christian. We have been saved. Justification. We will be saved, glorification, and we are being saved, sanctification. In other words, Christ's death on the cross has purchased for the believer all three of those things. And here, in verses 11 to 14, we see all three. Verse 11 and 14, notice, that's our past justification. Verse 13, that's our future glorification. And verse 12, this is our present sanctification. And so then, in verse 12, rather than God's grace giving us a license to sin, to live however we please, instead, no, notice God's saving grace in Christ now, verse 12, it trains us, it instructs us, it teaches us, it disciplines us. God's 
grace, his saving grace, is now at work in the believer, transforming us and sanctifying us. Grace trains. I think think the ESV Study Bible captures this thought so well when it writes, one cannot truly claim to be a recipient of saving grace without also being a pupil of training grace. If you are saved by grace, then you will be trained by grace. That's what Paul's saying. And so listen, this verse, uh, verse 12, it should, I mean, it should simply lay to rest any notion, any idea, any thought that one can possess saving grace and not in some growing, observable measure also be experiencing sanctifying grace. Listen, that you can be saved by grace and not also display the effects of training grace in your life, it is absurd. It is unbiblical. In other words, verse 12 teaches that it is, it is wrong, beloved. It is deadly to think that Jesus can be Savior and he cannot be Lord. Or he must not be Lord. He must be both. Because the saving grace of God trains us. Grace trains the believer. William Mounts again, he says in verse 12, verse 12 deals a death blow and puts to an end once and for all any theology that separates salvation from the demands of obedience to the lordship of Christ. And so then, what does this saving grace train us to do? What does this training actually look like? Well, notice there in verse 12, What Paul says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. So notice here Paul says that saving grace, it trains us both in a positive way and in a negative way. A positive way and a negative way. First, look at the negative way. First, notice Grace trains us, Paul says, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So, in other words, grace trains us, it teaches us, it disciplines us to say no. To say no to worldly passions. To say no to ungodliness. Which, by the way, by the way, it would be completely countercultural to those on the island of Crete, would it not? Because notice, notice there in chapter 1, verse 12, where we read about the Cretans, that the Cretans, again, they were, they were liars, Paul says, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. I mean, this, this was a culture that was defined by saying yes. Yes to ungodliness. Yes to worldly passions. But the Christian, the Christian is called, the Christian is empowered by grace to be distinct from the culture by saying no. And perhaps for some of you in the room this morning, prior to your conversion, this this was you. you. You were characterized by saying yes. You were characterized by saying yes to all kinds of ungodliness, all manner of worldly passions. You were saying yes, and then the grace of God, the saving grace of God broke into your life, and now this grace, it is teaching you, it is training you, it is empowering you to be able to say no. 
And sadly, there are many today who aren't saying no. I mean, we've embraced the culture. We're swallowing the culture. I mean, we're, we're taking it in. We're, we're letting it take root in our lives and in our hearts, the things we do, things we watch, the things we listen to. I mean, we're taking it in. We coddle it. We coddle sin. We embrace ungodliness. We bra- embrace worldliness. And then... We wonder why the gospel's having no impact on others around us because we look just like the world. I remember at our former house, Lauren and I, we we had a problem with brown recluse spiders. And apparently, once you have them, it's hard to get rid of them. And so, my rationale was, okay, we can control this. We'll just be careful. We'll just try to live with it, get rid of them as best we can. And her approach was, let's move. <laughs> let's get as far away as we possibly can. And sadly, sadly, this is what so many of us do with sin, isn't it? With ungodliness, with, with worldly Passions. Oh, I I can live with this. I'm okay. It's under control. I can can tolerate it. I can be around it and not get bit. And Paul says, no. Grace trains us to say no. But that's not all grace trains us to do. This grace also trains us, notice, to say yes. Look, there Again, verse 12, grace also trains us to cultivate godly lives. Look what Paul says in verse 12. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So grace, it not only trains us to say no, but grace also trains us to say yes. It not only prohibits sin and ungodliness, but notice it also commands us, and it actually enables us to, to say yes. It enables us, it empowers us For things like, notice verse 12, self-control, upright living, godliness. Again, verse 12, grace trains us by training us to control ourselves, to restrain our sinful passions. It, it, It trains us to treat others with fairness and righteousness and justice. Grace instructs us in godliness, in in living godly lives. To live with regard for God and his glory, for for what pleases and honors him. Doing all of this out of honor for him and reverence for him and and love for him and, and devotion to him. Not, listen, not in an effort to earn his grace, but simply because we are being trained by his grace and we love grace and we've been captured by grace and we're amazed by grace and thus all the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I think Brian Chappell, he captures this effectively when he describes the Puritans, what the Puritans believed and taught and something I think would be helpful for us to remember. He writes this, he says, this dynamic of having the love of God create an intolerance for sin is what the Puritans called 
the power of new affections. He writes, what will ultimately make us holy is not willpower, nor guilt, nor an inspiring message, but, he says, a deep apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. He says, the resultant love for God drives out and replaces our natural love for sin. These evil affections are replaced, he says, by an eagerness for good only as apprehension of Christ's grace wells up within us and ultimately drives out the old affections. Listen, only grace can do that in your life, beloved. Only grace can train you to say no to sin and yes to godliness. It's not by willpower. It's not by trying harder. It's not by guilt. It's not by pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. It is only by his grace. It is a deep, he says, apprehension of the grace of God in Christ. That's what will do it. In fact, in verse 14... Notice in verse 14, Paul again, notice, notice what he does here. He, he looks back to grace. He looks back to the cross. He looks back to the first appearing of Christ. He looks back to his finished work. And he does so here in order to demonstrate for these Cretan believers, and for you and I as well, how looking back to saving grace actually now works in us to sanctify us in the present. In other words, how God's past grace trains us in the present to say no to sin and yes to godliness. So look at verse 14. See what I mean here. See verse 14 as your practical training manual for how to grow in godliness. This is it. How our looking backward and thinking on and reminding ourselves of the finished work of Christ actually empowers us to say no to worldliness and yes to godly living. Let me show you how. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 14. Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Notice here again, Paul points us back to the cross. This, my friends, is gospel-centered living at its finest, okay? Again, the ESV study Bible is so right when it says this is arguably the most concise explanation of gospel-centered living found anywhere in Scripture. This is what it looks like to live a gospel-centered life, to continually be looking backward to the cross. Notice how. First, verse 14. Christian, live your life in verse 14. Never get over verse 14. This phrase, he gave himself for us. Live there. Emphasize every word of that. He gave himself for us. He gave himself 
for us. He gave himself for us. He gave himself for us. His sacrifice, it was voluntary. It was substitutionary. In my place, condemned he stood. He gave himself for my sin. He took my penalty. He absorbed my wrath. He died in my place. He gave himself for me. And so the next time you are tempted to say yes to sin, think about the broken, beaten, bloody body of Jesus Christ as he hung suspended on the cross, crushed under the wrath of God for your sin, absorbing the awful wrath of God in my place. And he did it for me. And see if that doesn't train you to say no to sin. He gave himself for us. But that's not all he did. Notice also Paul says he not only gave himself for us, he redeemed us. Look again there, verse 14. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Christ is also, notice here, our redemption. Verse 14, that, that word redeem, it, it means to release a slave by, by paying a ransom. That's what it means to redeem something. Jesus paid our ransom. In fact, he himself is our ransom. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for Many. Christ not only took the penalty for our sin, but also by his death he has broken the power of sin. Do you see that? It means he's redeemed us, he's liberated us. We have, we have been freed from our sin. We have been released from prison. The, the chains have been removed. Hallelujah. He breaks the power of canceled sin. And now you and I, Paul says, we have been redeemed from all lawlessness, meaning that the power of sin now has been broken over our lives, and so we are no longer slaves to sin, and therefore you now have a power, Christian, that you didn't have before. You have a power by the transforming, sanctifying grace at work in you to say no to sin and yes to godliness because he's freed you now to live a godly life. He's redeemed you. And the grace just keeps on coming because in verse 14, notice, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. I mean, you want to fight sin? Here it is. He's your cleansing. He has cleansed every stain. He has addressed our guilt and defilement before God. Because in order for God to accept you, he has to first purify you. Because God is holy and you are under his just wrath and condemnation, but Christ, he shed his blood on the cross for your sins, and he's cleansed you so that he can make you purified now. And so, believer, listen, you are pure. You are cleansed. And therefore, there is no sin. There is no stain. There is no past failure that is beyond his cleansing power. 
That will train you to say no to sin. That will train you to say yes to godliness. Think on that. And then finally, finally, verse 14. This is an amazing statement where he says, this was all done in order, notice Paul says, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Just hear the Old Testament language just ringing in those phrases of verse 14. Christ is our sacrifice. Christ is our Passover lamb. He is our deliverance from bondage in slavery. He is our exodus. He's the greater Moses. He's the greater Passover lamb. He's the greater exodus. And he's made you believer his very own. Beloved, he's made you his. You belong to him now. You are his, Paul says, prized possession. You are his treasure. He bought you. This is now your identity as a Christian. So just feel the love of God for you individually this morning. You are his prized possession. And see if that doesn't help you to say yes to godliness and no to sin. And it is now, in response to that grace, for for all who have received this saving grace, that this grace is now at work in us, it's it's training us, it's it's enabling us to say no to sin, to say yes to godliness. And, And this happens, beloved, as we look back to what Christ has done. This is gospel-centered living. This is how you live every day as a Christian. We look back. However, we are also, Paul says, trained by grace as we look forward. As we look forward to what will happen when he appears again. In fact, notice In order to be effectively trained by sanctifying grace, now in the present, notice Paul says also, we must not only look back to grace, but we must also look forward to what is to come. Finally, finally, number three, looking forward to grace. Verse 13, notice in verse 13 that the Christian is not only to look backward to Christ's first appearing, his life, his death, his resurrection and all that that entails now for the believer by faith in him. But also notice the Christian is to look forward to Christ's return, his appearing, his coming again as well. And what enables the Christian to say no to sin and yes to godliness is a, a looking forward. It is, a, it is an ever-present awareness of Christ's future return. Look there again, verse 13. Waiting, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, verse 13, note note the difference here. Note the difference now. The first appearing, it revealed His grace. But his next appearing, it will reveal his glory. 
His first appearance was in humility. It was in lowliness. But his, his second, his next appearing, it will be in full and final glory. The same Christ who came in condescending grace, he will one day return in triumphant grace. And this, this will be, beloved, this will be the culmination. This will be the consummation of our salvation. This is the only event left on God's calendar. He's coming. And what are we to be doing in the meantime? Verse 13, we're waiting. We're waiting. Do you like waiting? I hate waiting. I hate waiting. I hate waiting in line. I hate waiting in the drive-thru. I hate being put on hold. I hate waiting in the doctor's office. I mean, I went to urgent care a few weeks ago, sick as a dog. I'm the only one in the waiting room, and I'm waiting. For what? We don't like waiting. But Paul says we are called to wait. We are called to wait with anticipation. We are called to wait with expectation. We are called to wait with eagerness. We're called to wait with readiness and alertness. In fact, in fact, what the actual word waiting here means, it isn't like waiting at a doctor's office or on hold. No, this, this kind of waiting that Paul is describing, this, this, is, an, this is an eager waiting. This, this is a sense of longing with anticipation. This is an edge of your seat kind of waiting. Verse 13, waiting for what? Notice, waiting for our blessed hope. We are waiting, brothers and sisters, for unimaginable future eternal blessing. And this hope in verse 13 that he is describing, it isn't some kind of blind faith. It isn't some kind of leap in the dark. It isn't some kind of, oh, I hope this happens. No, this hope, it is the confident certainty. It is the rock-solid assurance of what is promised for the believer, for those who are waiting for him. And what is this blessed hope? Well, notice verse 13. It's the appearing, it's the unveiling of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What are we waiting for? We are waiting for Jesus Christ to be revealed in all of his glory. When the sky will crack open and he will descend with his host of angels and we will see him face to face. We will see him in all of his glory and sin will be eradicated, and we will live forevermore on the new heavens and the new earth, and we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's what we're waiting for. And what you are waiting for, it changes how you wait. What you are waiting for changes how you wait. Andreas Kostenberger, he says of verse 13, he says, Paul concludes his series of exhortations by aiming to motivate believers by setting their present efforts in eternal perspective. Eternal perspective. 
Paul wants to fix our eyes on eternity. And listen, listen, certainty about that future day, it transforms how you live today. It does. It transforms how you live today. So, so are you looking? Are you waiting? Because this, beloved, it will make all the difference in your life whether or not you are pursuing godliness in your life today. You see, the problem with most of us is we aren't looking. Are we? We're distracted. How much time this past week did you spend thinking about that day? Teenagers, listen, children, you don't often think about that day. I know you don't, but you should. You should think about that day. And I guarantee you, if you think about that day more often, it will change how you live today. It will change your actions. It will change your words. It will change your thoughts. It will change what your career goals are. It will change what you do with your life. I was talking with my granddad this week. He's in his mid-80s, um, Air Force, retired pastor, and I was hoping that he would come to visit me in a few weeks. Um, he loves Jesus, by the way, but he, he isn't. He isn't going to be able to come mainly because he's getting to the age now where he, he, just, he just can't travel, and each time I, I see him, he just looks like he's getting weaker, and he's getting weaker. And frankly, I, I don't know how many more chances I'm going to get to see him. Living 12 hours away. And I asked him on the phone, because I knew that I was going to preach this text, and I was thinking about this verse I asked him, I said, Grandpa, how much do you think about heaven? And he said, Son, I'm thinking about it more and more each passing day. I met with a, uh, a brother in our church this week, and he was describing for me the events surrounding a horrible tragedy in his life several years ago where he lost his father suddenly and he was here and then he was gone. What do you say? And in that moment I was thinking, come Lord Jesus, come and end all of this. Beloved, we're waiting. We are longing. We are looking for his appearing. 
And if you are waiting, if you are looking, then when temptation arises, when you're tempted toward ungodliness and worldly passions, and you fix your eyes on Calvary where the Son of God suffered for your sin, and you fix your eyes at the same time on His glorious future return, then grace will train you to say no to sin. But it will also inspire you to say yes to godliness. In fact, just notice, notice what Paul says, this looking backward and this looking forward, what it produces in the heart of a Christian. Look there again, verse 13. He says, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Verse 14, who are zealous for good works. Oh, listen, a life that has been changed and transformed by past grace and future grace, it won't result in merely a profession of faith without changing your affections, without changing your behavior, without changing the way that you live. No, it will produce in you, it will result in a zeal, a passion for good works. Not to somehow merit his grace, but because you've been a recipient of his grace. And that grace is at work in you. And this is your glad response now to his grace. So does that phrase, beloved, does it describe you? Are you zealous for good works? You will be if you're looking both ways. Let me just allow John Stott to end us. Here's what he says. He says, this deliberate orientation of ourselves, this looking back and looking forward, this determination to live in the light of Christ's two comings, to live today in the light of yesterday and tomorrow, this should be an essential part of the Christian's daily discipline. He says, we need to say to ourselves regularly the great acclamation Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. For two, then, our present duties, it will inspire us by past and future appearings to live for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, that is our declaration. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. May we, by the help of your Holy Spirit, fix our eyes on Calvary, on the cross where the Son of God suffered for our sins to make us your own. May we fix our eyes there. May that empower us to live godly lives in the present age. And at the same time, Lord, help us to fix our eyes on the day when you will come. When Christ will return and he will make all things new. May we live with that eager hope, that eager anticipation as we live our lives now. For your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.